American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time to When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy. And I'm Joe. I'm just a regular guy. All right. Just an average joke. And this is the podcast that brings you all of the nostalgic, crazy so events. So many nostalgic, crazy events. That have events. happened in the past, and we do it year by year. We're talking UFO abductions. We're talking murders. We're talking Lenny and Squiggy on Laverne and Shirley episodes. It's all That's right. that. It's sporting events. It's the World Series. Who sang the national anthem? It's the Super Bowl. That's right. And tonight we are talking about that. 1977. It's all that stuff that we all care about. It's just the cool stuff, not the dumb stuff. All right. And we're going to finish up 1977 here. We left off in August. Uh, son, the son of Sam was murdering everybody. That's right. And that's where we left off. And so we got... We got to jump right in because we got to finish 77. We got so many things. I have a big thing to talk about uh, later on in November when we get there. Okay. I've been waiting to talk about this for so long. Oh, my. uh, It's just a groundbreaking. Is it going to be some stupid wrestling story? No. Okay. Thank God. But Greg the Hammer Valentine was starting out around this time. All right. What is the first thing we're going to talk about? The first, well, where we left off in August, one thing we didn't talk about is <laughs> the uh australian maybe we talk august 14th 1977 uh when australian driver alan jones won the 1977 australian formula one grand prix does that sound familiar to you no now you're thinking it's sports i'm gonna just you know tune out mm-hmm. although racing's not really sports because they don't have to be in shape but listen up the, ra- the race organizers didn't have a copy of his national anthem to play. He was from Austria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, <laughs> they didn't have a copy of his national anthem to play at the podium ceremony, unaware that it was God Save the Queen. But instead, uh, they didn't know what to play. So they had a drunk person play Happy Birthday on a trumpet. No. <laughs> yes, yes. What? Uh, yes. They had a guy play they didn't know what to do. They were panicking. They found, can anybody play anything? What do we do? And they grabbed uh, some drunk guy. I, I know happy birthday. I can play happy birthday on a trumpet. And a drunk man played happy birthday oh on a trumpet. Oh, my God. How anticlimactic. How great is that? It's crazy. But it's Australia. I think they're always drunk over there. Austria. Oh, Austria. Well, you know what? I did say Australian driver. Yeah, that's why I got confused. Well, it was the Austrian Formula One. But, but he was but Australian. An Australian driver. Okay, one, I, I got guess. it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, Formula One. I don't know what the difference is between that and NASCAR and anything else. It's probably a smaller car or a funny car. Do you know what a funny car is? No. I don't. Do you want to start going to races? A funny car. What are you talking about? That's a kind of a race car. I think there's a funny car. They call it the funny car. You're making that up. Maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I've heard that somewhere. I don't there know is about that. There. There is. Ah, never mind. Well, do, you, do you want to start going to races? Do you no. want to start going to NASCAR? No. The only time I've ever been to anything like that 
Why would you even ask me that question? <laughs> I want to go start well, going to NASCAR. Well, it's just something we don't know about. Like, we don't get that culture. Like, maybe we'll understand it more if we start going to a few. Because we live in NASCAR country. I don't care. We're in Charlotte, That's, North Carolina. I'd rather have somebody poke my eyeballs out than How go to know? NASCAR. How do you know? Maybe I can't imagine it. anything more unpleasant. It's loud. It smells bad. It's sounds like our house. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. But at least here I can wear slippers. You can wear slippers in NASCAR. You'll yeah, fit probably right in. would fit right in. Fit you? right in. Yeah. Just you don't even have to wear a shirt. Well, you can probably get a tattoo in the parking lot. Yeah, probably could. All right. Why wouldn't you want to just try it? Just check it out. Maybe I you'll love it. No way. There's you don't know. No way. All right. And on August 15th, 1977, the Big Ear Radio Telescope heard what many may consider a radio transmission from outer space. Oh, sweet. From an intelligent extraterrestrial source. Is this the wow signal? Yes. It lasted 72 seconds and has not been heard since. It's the wow signal. You've heard of this? Yes. What do you know about this? I know it was um, some kind of signal that they got that seemed like an intelligent I don't, I don't know some scientifically specifics. I just know the scientist wrote wow on pen right next to it on the printout, and that's why they call it the wow signal. Well, it originated from near Chai Sagittari. Its frequency is very close to the hydrogen line, which scientists believe intelligent races might use to send a strong signal. Yeah. In a, in a 2012 podcast, mm -hmm. scientific skeptic Arthur... Uh, Scientific skeptic author Brian Dunning concluded that a radio transmission from deep space in the direction of Sagittarius as opposed to a near-Earth origin remains the best technical explanation for the emission, although there is no evidence to conclude that an alien intelligence was the source. Wait, so he said he said it was, he thought it was aliens? Yeah, he, he says he concluded that a radio transmission from deep space uh as opposed to a near-Earth origin. Because a lot of people, they summed it up as being something like that came from Earth and then it bounced oh, back right. from, it bounced off something in space and came back, I think. Right. Um, and, and he's saying he doesn't think that. I, he thinks, yeah, he thinks it's actually just from, some, it originated in, in, in space, but he doesn't, he's, not concluding that it's an alien. I, okay. In 2017, Antonio Paris proposed that the hydrogen cloud surrounding two comets, uh, now known to have been in roughly the right position, could have been the source of the wow signal. However, this theory has attracted strong criticism, including from members of the original Big Ear research team, as a more detailed analysis shows that sighted comet, comets were not in the beam at the correct time. Okay. Furthermore... Because that's what people were saying. It bounced off these comets and came back. Furthermore, comets are not radio bright at these frequencies, and there is no explanation for why a comet would be observed in one beam but not in the other. Uh, anyway, that's we okay. don't know. We still don't know what don't that know is. Don't know what it was. There was so much alien activity in the 70s. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Like, where do they all go? Yeah, unless they're still going on and we just don't hear about it. Or we do hear about it if you're looking in the right places Yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. You can find all kinds of crazy shit on YouTube, though. Yeah. My Google, one of my Google alerts is alien stuff, so I get all kinds of conspiracy oh, theories sent to me. So I'm keeping an eye out. I'm keeping an eye I'm, I'm monitoring the situation, just so you know. August 20th, 1977, we have a new number one song on the Billboard chart. Mm-hmm. 
the emotions. Okay. Do you, do you know who they are? No. Do you remember them? Mm-mm. Best of my love. Oh, sweet darling. I thought that was the, the Eagles. The emotions. The best of my love. That's the Eagles. No, the emotions. This, maybe there's a different best of my love. Maybe it is because. Yeah, we gotta look it up. But that was near the same time, so why would they have the same exact name of a song? Maybe, maybe it's a different song. Oh, it is a different song. Yeah, I know this one. Get the best of my love. Yeah, this is what I was picturing. What were you thinking of? I was thinking of the Eagles. You get the best of my love. The Eagles redid the song? No, the Eagles did a different song. How did it go? Well, I was singing it. Whoa, sweet darling, you get the best of my love. You don't know that one? Eagles, best of my love. Let's hear this one. You'd think they'd come up with, you know, it's just one year. Think of another title. I don't know. When did that one come out? I wonder. Seventy-seven. It says Eagles too on, on YouTube. I don't know when it came out, but the one I, that version is from seventy-seven. Yeah. A live thing. Anyway, uh, the the emotions best of my love won a Grammy at the twentieth annual Grammy Awards for best R and B performance by a duo or group with vocals. Okay. Also won an American Music Award for favorite soul and R and B single. That's a pretty good song. It pretty, is a good song. Yeah. I like it, and I like you. I like you, honey. I like you. And September 8th, 1977. Mm-hmm. Got a couple things here. Uh, the Chia Pet came out. Oh, it did? The Chia Pet became a registered trademark belonging to Joseph Enterprises. Okay. The name was first used on September 8th, but the idea of growing plants around clay and other materials has been around forever. Oh. Chia pets are American-style terracotta figurines used to sprout chia, where the chia sprouts grow within a couple of weeks to resemble the animal's fur or hair. Moistened seeds of chia are applied to the groove terracotta everybody fig- knows what a chia pet is. <laughs> you don't have to... Ex- what the hell? I don't know. Whatever. But do you remember chia I do. Yes, I remember. It's still going on. I can't believe that was the 70s. That seems so 80s to me. I don't know. Did you ever have a chia I don't know. 70s decor was so like there was all that macrame and all that natural like hanging spider plants we and things like that. We should start collecting chia pets. I think chia pets fit right in with can all that. Can you still get those you think? What? Yeah. Chia, oh actually I know you can because I just recently your, saw. Your your cousin got a gr- Golden Girls chia pet. Oh yeah he did for his son. He got for it for his son. son. His son loves so his six year old son loves Sophia. From the Golden from Girls. From the Golden Girls. That's his favorite character. <laughs> uh uh, there is a new, um, I saw, there's another Chia Pet. They have the cast of um, Stranger Things you can get okay. as Chia Heads. Mr. T was yeah. like the first Chia Head that I remember. Ch-ch-ch-chia. But right. the same day that the Chia Pets came out, there was an episode of uh, 60 Minutes where Morley Safer mm-hmm. revealed his story on the NRA. He he, did, he revealed a rare inside look at the powerful gun lobby and how it has influenced gun control laws in America. It was oh, a hard-hitting wow. yeah. expose. Well, on it September didn't, it didn't end up doing shit. 
It might have then. It was controversial then. I mean, it didn't end up swaying things in the other direction at all. Maybe it did then. We don't know how it went back and forth from then to now. It just seems like it's gotten more and more and more. Hey, get off your high. This is not a political podcast. You get off your high. Get off your high horse. That's what I was going to say. Get off your high horse, I can say that if I want. No, this is not a gun control podcast. You're not a gun control podcast. We are equally, we are equally, um, this podcast is for the right wing and the left wing equal. We okay. want Trump supporters to listen to this podcast. MAGA. All right. Hashtag MAGA. I'll move on without comment. <laughs> what is that? Uh, I don't even know what that means. Everyone gets a gun. Everyone gets a gun. Craziest people first. Oh, yeah. Uh, September 14th. True. 1977, mm-hmm. the number five top, oh, 60 Minutes was the number four uh, top sh- TV show, according to Nielsen. That's why I brought up 60 Minutes. Okay. The number five show, according to 60 Minutes, aired an episode on September 14th where Sabrina and Kelly welcome a new angel in the person yes. of Jill's little sister, Chris. See, that's right. Chris Monroe. However, the celebration is short-lived, honey, as the angels receive word that Charlie who was on vacation in Hawaii, has been kidnapped by Lailani Sacco, (laughs) who wants the angels to break her husband Billy out of prison or else she will kill Charlie. Oh, jeez. What a dumb premise. Do you you think the girls succeeded? I'm sure they did. Well, they did. They got Billy out, but before they can make the exchange, Charlie's taken hostage by the the even more vicious Mr. Blue, who wants Billy dead. It's amazing what you can do when you don't wear a bra. I love boobs. That was um, the biggest moral of that show. Boobs are fabulous. I don't know why. Uh, They're just cool. All right. We're moving on. October 1st, 1977. Mecco takes over the number one spot on the Billboard charts. Never heard of them. With the Star Wars theme. Oh, the Cantina song? The disco version. Yeah, the Cantina Bay and the Star Wars disco version. Yeah. You remember that? Kind of. You want me to play it? I mean, I, yeah, I remember it. I don't think I ever had, like, a, a record of it, or I, I don't even know if I had anybody, if I knew anybody that had a record of it or anything, but I do faintly remember it. Oh, my God. It's so cheesy, isn't it? You just see people dressed up like Darth Vader and Princess Leia or in, the, into that. or in a white jumpsuit yeah, like w- yeah. John Travolta. Yep. A um, white three-piece suit. Yeah, that was number one. Like Everyone oh loves Star Wars and they love, they love disco. So they're like, yes, that's great. Put them together. Think about like every Friday night, Saturday night in the 70s. People couldn't wait to just go out. They were all going out and getting murdered. Yeah. It's, it seems like. You either, let's go out and have a good time. We're going to have fun at a disco or get murdered. Yep. Good Those were the murder. two choices. Yeah. The crime. And then on October 2nd, 1977, one of the Best Picture nominees came out. Okay. A movie called Julia. Do you remember this? Do you know this movie? Um, a Dr- sort of. Directed by Fred Zinneman. Okay. At the behest. Zinneman. Zinneman. Like Zinneman, but with a Z? Well, Zinneman. Zinneman. Okay. Zinneman. At the behest of an old and dear friend, playwright Lillian Hellman undertakes a dangerous mission to smuggle funds into Nazi Germany. Starring Jane Fonda, Vanessa Redgrave, and Jason Robards. Does that sound boring? You're a big Robards fan. It's true, but don't you? doesn't that sound boring? Yeah. Meryl Streep's movie debut. Oh, okay. Jason Robards is a bad motherfucker. 
Okay. Didn't you have posters of Jason Robards all no. over your bedroom window? No. Your bedroom door, or wall, I mean, window. No. Your bedroom wall, Jason Robards. You were like, oh, Jason Robards. Drew hearts all over him. Didn't like happen. Heartthrob. Jason Robards. All right, what's next? You're in love with Jason Robards. This is the cool thing. That same day that mm-hmm. Julia came out, mm-hmm. uh, this was also the last day of the regular season of Major League Baseball. And just bear with me. This is going to be cool. You're going to end up liking this. In the sixth inning. Okay. In Dodgers Stadium in Los Angeles, Dusty Baker, former, you know, you know him as a former Cubs manager. Okay. Dusty Baker hit a home run off, right. off Houston Astros pitcher J.R. Richard. Okay. Okay. It was Baker's 30th home run, making the Dodgers the first team in history to have four hitters with at least 30 home runs each in a single season. And as as journalist John Mualem tells the story, it was a wild, triumphant moment and a good omen as the Dodgers headed to the playoffs. Burke waiting on deck. This is Glenn Burke. Glenn Burke is waiting on deck, okay? Okay. Glenn Burke thrust his hand as Dusty Baker is rounding the plate. Glenn Burke thrust his hand enthusiastically over his head to greet his friend at the plate. Dusty Baker, not knowing what to do, smacked his hand. Oh. Dusty Baker said his hand was up in the air, and he was arching way back, says Baker. So I reached up, and I hit his hand. It seemed like the thing to do. The high five was born. Didn't we already have this happen? No. How come I feel like I've heard this story? insane. This story regarding the origin of the high five can be found in the written news as early as September 1982, and is featured in the ESPN 30 for 30 film, The High Five, directed by Michael Jacobs. That's pretty sweet. But here's the coolest thing about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn Burke, who high-fived Dusty Baker, mm-hmm. he retired from baseball, and he became one of the first openly gay professional athletes. Oh, and that's he, awesome. He used the high-five with other gay residents of the Castro District district of San Francisco, where for many, for many people, it became a symbol of gay pride and identification. High-fives? The high-five. That oh, was a really? gay identification thing. Oh, wow. How about that? Now, everybody, now it's a universal thing. And it's also gay pride and hooray for gay. That's right. That's pretty sweet. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't know that. Now, there's other, it's not a universal thing because um, some people say the high five originated from the low five, which has been part of African-American culture since at least World War II. Oh. It's probably impossible to know exactly when the African-American, you said? Yeah. Okay. It's probably impossible to know exactly when the low first transition to a high but there are many theories about its inception magic johnson actually claims he invented the high five at michigan state some, he, sometime he, in the late 70s but uh and others have suggested it originated in the women's volleyball circuit of the 60s so it probably did and it's because they're women they don't want that to be the well, story either way at least it's at least it's either women or gays that's finally true. they have something yes that's right 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 so from now on, anytime I see anyone high five or I well, and you anybody, you are you re- you are requesting to do that constantly with people you know. <laughs> I so love high fives. You yeah. High you, five. It, no matter high where five. you are, chances are you've asked at least one person there to high five with you. Actually, every monetary transaction I make, I try to end it in a high five. Whether I'm at the grocery store, yes, gas yes. station, yes, you do. Horn purchase, high five. High five. High five. And you know what? It works about 60% of the time. Mm-hmm. The other person high fives. The other 40%, they just look at me in disgust. 
Sometimes they throw their shoe at me. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they call, they press the panic button. Sometimes they press the charges. Desk. Yes. I just opened a delicious heady topper. I thought you were drinking hop slam. I only bought one hop slam because the liquor store I found it at had a limit of one can per person. That's ridiculous. What's the point? Well, they bought a limited supply, I guess, so I could only buy one can. So I drove to the liquor store. <laughs> they only let me buy one can of delicious Bell's Hop Slam, and I've already finished it. It's so good. So I opened a heady topper that I got, which is also hard to find. This is delicious. All right, we don't need th- we don't need to listen to you drink a beer. It's from Vermont. Mm, that's good. All right. Heady Topper and Hop Slam, both delicious, hard-to-find beers, and I'm drinking them here on American Timelines. What's next? Feel free to free feel free uh, bells to support us, or um, the right. alchemist. Feel free to send us money for supporting your beers, your delicious, wonderful beers, or just send us beers. I'd be happy with that. October fifteenth, nineteen seventy-seven. Debbie Boone. Do you know who that is? Yes. What is she saying? You light up my life. And that's now number one. Oh, All the way wow. until December 23rd, 1977. So we're going to take a break on songs. Holy moly. Yep. God, uh, that's a long time for that song to be popular. That was what, real popular. What soundtrack is this from? I have that I don't know. You don't know? I don't think so. It's from the 1977 film, You Light Up My Life. You know what? I think I had the 45 of You Light Up My Life. Do you still have I'm it? almost positive I did. Now that I'm thinking about it. You know what? Actually, I would explain a lot about you. I know. Right? You seem like a big Debbie Boone. I was like four, and I had. I think I had a 45 of You Light Up My Life. I can see that shaping your childhood. Mm-hmm. Seriously. You are I had that, and I had an ABBA 45. Oh, now it's ABBA. And you were had, yelling at me and then saying it's ABBA. I know. I don't know what I was thinking. I was on drugs at the time, I believe. Um, you do a lot of drugs. And I also had King Abba. Tut. Um, oh, Steve Martin? Steve Martin's King Tut did on 45. The, did you have the... Oh, on 45. That's I just had the 45. We had the whole big album, LP album that was folded out. Mm-hmm. And it, it folded out and, Steve, and you could hang on. Steve Martin was like... Had the um, arrow through his head yep. and the funny... <laughs> Tuna fish under his arms. Oh, Steve Martin's the best. Yep. Anyway, this is the original cast soundtrack recording. Uh, what did, have, what movie a, was it from? You Light Up My Life. Oh, there's a movie called that? Yep, and the song was lip-synced in the film by its lead actress, Dee Dee Khan. Oh, God. But the best-known version of the song is a cover by Debbie Boone, the daughter of singer... Pat Boone. Pat Boone. Yep. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a whole... Debbie is such a 70s name. Debbie. Debbie Boone. Hey, you named somebody named Debbie. They were named in They were the named in the 70s. 60s or 70s. That's right. Debbie. I love Debbie. All right. <laughs> Nobody names their kid Debbie anymore. No, they Who's don't. Debbie. No Debbies. It's Madison and Skylar and Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't match. That'd be funny. Um, oh. There, uh... Do you know who uh, Joseph Brooks? There were some Joseph Brooks controversies. Who's Joseph Brooks? So, "You Light Up My Life" is written by Joseph Joe Brooks. Oh, is this uh, worth it? He raped a bunch of people. Oh, okay. Know. He raped somebody. He did. Yeah. Do you want to talk about no that? casting couch rapes? Jeez. He was he was he was indicted in May two thousand nine by the state supreme court for Manhattan. 
on 91 counts of rape, sexual abuse, criminal sexual act, assault, and other charges. But his legal status was never conclusively resolved. For a while waiting trial, Brooks committed suicide on May 22nd, 2011. And so, he's the one that wrote that song? Yep. You lied up my life. I raped a bunch of people then killed myself. Wow. Yeah, so there you go. So that song can no longer be enjoyed. October 18th, 1977, the Yankees defeated the Dodgers four games to two to win the franchise's 21st World Series championship, their first since 1962, and the first under the ownership of George Steinbrenner. Wow, okay. During this series, Reggie Jackson earned his nickname Mr. October for his heroic for his heroics. Sorry. All right. Billy Martin won what would be his only World Series title as a manager after guiding the Yankees to a second straight pennant. And contrary to what you may have heard, mm-hmm. Howard Cosell never said the Bronx is burning during the nineteen seventy seven World Series. <laughs> That's a famous thing. The okay. Bronx is burning. You I know, just like love that, that you said that. Contrary to what you probably always believed, and I'm like, I, I have you. no memory well, I wasn't of. Talking, I was talking to our listeners. I know, but it's some just our, funny. Some of our listeners were around in the 70s and listened and, and really believed that that was true, but it's not. Okay. But Reggie Jackson, I was a big fan of Reggie Jackson. He was everywhere when I was a kid. Do you remember Reggie Jackson at all? No. I do not. You don't remember Reggie Jackson at all? You have no memory no. of Reggie Jackson? No. Why would I? I didn't follow sports. Well, he was everywhere. He was on Sesame Street and the I mean, if I saw him, I'd probably know who he was, I guess. He was a black guy with glasses. He played baseball and a mustache. He was really good. Uh, probably. I don't know. I mean, Reggie Jackson was the shit. I think I had a poster of Reggie Jackson. All right. Quit creaming over Reggie Jackson and tell me what it's... <laughs> Quit creaming? Tell me what I'm you're trying to over, say. I'm creaming over Reggie Jackson? Yeah. Tell me what you're trying to say about it. I think that's the first time anyone in the history of America has ever said, quit creaming over Reggie Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) No, Reggie Jackson was amazing. Everybody loved him. Everybody should love him. And everybody always loves him. I hope he never raped anyone because that ruins everyone. It does. And then October 20th, 1977, Aerosmith's flight crew, they inspected a Convair CV-240. That's an airplane. Mm -hmm. They inspected it for possible use. And and his flight crew rejected that plane. Okay. They felt that plane and crew were not up to their standards. So Aerosmith said, nope, we're not taking that plane. Fuck you. Take Leonard Skinner on that plane. Oh, yeah? That plane crashed on October Whoa. 20th, 1977, from fuel exhaustion due to poor maintenance, killing three members of Leonard Skinner. Really? Yep, because Leonard Skinner's flight crew didn't give Wait up Wait a minute. Yet. When, did they, when did they inspect it and reject it? That same time or no? Um, was that early, a lot earlier? Well, I'm not sure exactly. I have the date of the crash. Oh, okay. I don't have the date of when they... Maybe it was the same day. I don't know. Ronnie Van Zant, Steve Gaines died on October 20th. Three days after the album Street Survivors was released. Mm-hmm. And five days into the band's most successful ticket sales tour yet. Wow. That's crazy. A plane carrying the band between shows from Greenville, South Carolina... To Baton Rouge, Louisiana, crashed outside of Gillsburg, Mississippi. The plane landed in a swampy area and crashed into trees. Gaines died from blunt force trauma to the head. He was 28 years old and likely was killed on impact. The crash mm-hmm. also killed Ronnie Van Sant, Steve's sister Cassie Gaines, assistant road manager Dean Kilpatrick, and pilot Walter McCreary and co-pilot William Gray. Oh, man. Yep. What else? Steve Gaines is the subject of the 2001 song 
Cassie's Brother by rock band Drive-By Truckers. You ever heard of them? No. Less than two years after this plane crash, the Gaines's mother, Cassie LaRue Gaines, was killed in an automobile accident near the cemetery. Jeez. Where Steve and Cassie were buried. She was buried near her children. Jeez. And then the next year... What? Somebody else? No. A taxi died with the same person in it. No. Remember that? Yeah. All right. And then November 1st, 1977, another Best Picture nomination movie, The Turning Point, came out. Do you know that movie? No. Did we watch the previous? I think so. When her daughter joins a ballet company, a former dancer is forced to confront her long-ago decision to give up the stage to have a family. Directed by Herbert Ross, starring Anne Bancroft, Shirley MacLaine, and Mikhail Baryshnikov. That's right. Yeah, because you, you said your aunt was in love with Mikhail Baryshnikov, and it was. I realized then it was probably because of that. You know that he was in movies. Right. So your aunt loved Mikhail Baryshnikov. Yes. And it's funny because she married a guy who looks exactly like Mikhail Baryshnikov. <laughs> yeah. And he dances just the same. That's right. That's crazy. You would have you would have known easily. I know it. And then on November twenty second, wait, what day do you have? I think it's November twentieth. Oh, November twentieth. Yeah. And that brings us to November twentieth, nineteen seventy seven, and now it's time for Amy to sh- drop some knowledge on us about some crazy murderer or abduction or probably somebody who raped everybody. All right, so. Thanksgiving week, 1977. Here we go, true crime lovers. Here you go. Thanksgiving week of 1977, true crime lovers. Five young women and girls were found on hillsides in the Glendale Highland Park area of Los Angeles. Oh, they were found alive. No. No. These five young women, one of whom was 12, another only 14, were not prostitutes, but quote-unquote nice girls who had been abducted from their middle-class neighborhoods. Wait, 12 and 14? Mm-hmm. Why would anybody think they're prostitutes if they're 12 and 14? You, wouldn't be surpri- you would be surprised. The normally numb collective conscious of the public suddenly went into a panic. The media coined the killer the Hillside Strangler. Oh, the Hillside Strangler. That's famous, isn't it? Yes, even though police were convinced there was more than one person involved. The hillside strangler. So on Sunday, November 20th, 1977. Oh, the same time uh, that Flip Wilson hosted Battle of the Sexes live. Is, didn't they redo that show? It sounds familiar. I don't think so. But this one had Bruce Jenner, Farrah Fawcett, David Cassidy, Dick Van Patten, Susan St. James, Christy McNichol, and Robert Can- Conrad. Okay. The Battle of the Sexes Live. And you can, if you look this up on YouTube, Mm -hmm. um, you can see an intro of it. And (laughs) and they show a bunch of people who, you know, somebody from Grizzly Adams, the Grizzly Mm -hmm. Adams show. Mm -hmm. They show Hal Linden. They're they're in a diving competition. They show them all in Speedos. Hal Linden, Freddie Boom Boom Washington is in Speedos. Yeah. And and, uh, Christy McNichol. It's like, Christy McNichol's only 14. But yeah. here she is in a diving competition. Also on this day, I would re- I would be remiss if I didn't say this was also the same day that Walter Payton rushed for an NFL record 275 yards for the Bears. Oh, okay. Against the Vikings. Oh. Mm. Okay. So the same day Walter Payton's running his ass off, what happened? So LAPD homicide detective Sergeant Bob Grogan 
Bob Grogan. He was called to an obscure area in the hills between Glendale and Eagle Rock. What a weird area of the hills this is, he thought to himself. As he tried with difficulty to locate the site, he thought to himself that whoever was using this area to dump bodies must be very familiar with the neighborhood to even know this place existed. This guy gotta be from here, because this is crazy shit. The dead girl was found naked in a modest middle-class neighborhood. Oh, naked dead girl. Grogan immediately noticed the ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck. Wait, what's a ligature mark? The strangulation mark, like like something was... Tied around it and Gross. tightly. You love this stuff. Why do you no, like I, this? It's it's. You I like it know. when people. Are I murdered. don't know. I don't like it when people get murdered. I Let's think just that's what you true crime fans right like. So oddly enough, there were two puncture marks on her arm, but no sign of needle tracks that indicate a drug addict. All right. As Grogan examined the scene, he saw no indication of any disturbance in the foli- foliage nor any sign that the body had been dragged there. So he made a note to himself that the murder occurred somewhere else, and yeah. a man, or maybe two men, had carried her body and dumped her in the grass. It's got to be two suspects. Yes. Or a real strong one. Right, it could be that, Like too. with the strength of a, you know, say, young Brett the but Hitman d- heart. But dead bodies are supposed to be so heavy. Like, you, there's no way you could pick... I mean, if you, it's a young girl, though, if it's a 14-year-old girl... I don't know. Or a 12-year-old girl? There? Dead weight is really heavy. Hard it to is. move around. Oh, trust me. I've carried our children in from the car when they're pretending <laughs> to be asleep several times. I know. Um, a few hours later that afternoon, Grogan's partner, Dudley Varney. Dudley Varney, yo! Had been called to investigate two homicides on the other side of the same hilly area. I'm Dudley Varney. I don't fuck around. The two dead girls had been found by a nine-year-old boy who had tr- been treasure hunting in a trash heap on the hillside. Did he find any treasure? <laughs> <laughs> Just a dead body. Just a tw- two dead bodies. Well, that's pretty eventful for a yeah. nine-year-old boy. It is. Again, there was no in, there was no indication the murders had occurred where the bodies were found, nor was there any evidence the bodies had been dragged there. Hmm. Um, small as the young girls were, there was prob- a probability that more than one killer was involved in dumping their bodies on the hillside. Because they were heavy girls? I don't know. It didn't take long to identify the girls as Dolores Cepeda. Dolores. 12, and Sonia Johnson, 14, both oh. of whom had been missing for about a week from St. Ignatius School. Oh, no. They had been last seen getting off a bus and going over to a large two-tone sedan to talk to someone in the passenger side. Never go to a two-tone sedan. That's just a, a I tell my, our daughter that all the time. Never approach a two-tone sedan. But that, a so right, one-tone the sedan. person in the passenger side, that corroborated the theory that there were two killers, probably both men. Because she went to the passenger side yes. and they saw her do that. Talking to, yeah, somebody oh, in there. Oh, man. You know... Okay. The next day, the first girl was that Bob Grogan investigated was identified as Christina Weckler, a quiet 20-year-old honors student at the Pasadena Arts Center of Design. Why are honors students so quiet? Yeah, I know. On November 23rd... Oh, the same day that The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams was on, starting, starring Dan Haggerty, who also competed in the Battle of the Sexes. This is a, a show on NBC about an innocent fugitive from the law lives in the wilderness with a grizzly bear companion and helps passers-by in the forest. I, I never realized that's what that show was about. Yeah, but before the day before that... Did you ever watch that? No, not once. But oh. the guy had a... On the, I watched the Battle of the Sexes thing on YouTube, and the guy's got a big beard and mustache like, that mm-hmm. would be real popular now. He, oh. looks like a, he looks like your average guy uh, hipster. who runs a brewery. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but the day before that, on Happy Days... Snobby Cynthia Holmes schemed with her obnoxious cousin Skippy to make the Fonz look foolish at a country club soiree starring Morgan Fairchild. That was the number two show. Oh wow! Okay. But, and then, then so then that that, that day, 
Yes, that day. That day was Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, November 23rd. The, another young woman's body was found, this time near the Los Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Freeway. So while you might have been home watching the Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, there was a body being found That's in right. L.A. Her body was estimated to have been there some two weeks. She had been strangled like the others, but it was not certain if she had been raped. She was identified as 28-year-old Jane King. Jane King. Poor Jane King. So the police created a task force and were so overwhelmed with worthless tips from well-meaning citizens that it was hard for them to get anything going. The worthless killer. tips. Hey, I saw a snail. I saw a snail. I saw a slug in a yard. Does that help? Yep, that's right. Is that a worthless tip? That's pretty much. Uh, my... I shaved my pubes today. Well, I don't know. That's not really a tip. tip. (laughs) That's not really a tip. Then on Tuesday, November 29th. Oh, the same day that two FBI agents used the girl's apartment to stake out criminal activity across the street. When the suspect gets outside their window, though, the girls are shocked to see that Carmine is with him. Has Carmine (laughs) gone bad or is there another explanation? Laverne and Shirley get serious. So, on that day, the naked body of a young woman was found lying partially in the street. She also had ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck. But something was different. It looked as though she had burns on her palms. Huh. Like the strange puncture marks on Christina Weckler's arms, it looked as though the killers were experimenting, possibly with methods of torture. Oh, no. Fluids were also recovered at this scene. The woman was fluids. identified bodily fluids. Bodily fluids, like... Urine and diarrhea? Semen, probably. Semen? Yeah. Gross! Semen is disgusting! It's, it's the woman was identified as Lauren Wagner, an 18-year-old student who lived with her parents. Wait, hold on. Did you hear about in the news recently that person who injected semen into their back to relieve back pain? What? <laughs> yeah. No. Some dude it was, like, injecting semen into his back to relieve back pain. What? And now he's seriously in danger because that's really not good for you. His semen? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whose semen it is. Do you oh, hear this story? No. Uh, how do I Google this without... Um, Getting porn? Um, injecting. He injected... Inject. You're, this is a dream you had. That didn't really happen. Injected semen back pain. Here we go. Irish Medical Journal. Okay. A man in Dublin repeatedly injected himself with semen to relieve chronic chronic back pain. An X-ray what? revealed an area of trapped air beneath his skin. The patient disclosed that he had intravenously injected his own semen <laughs> as God. an innovative method to treat back pain. Doctors wrote in the study. No, he, why the, would the you do that? The man was hospitalized. Why would you do this that? In Ireland. What would make you think that would work? This is the first reported case of semen injection for use as a medical treatment, doctors in Dublin wrote. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> you think? Yeah. Uh, an unusual presentation of a subcutaneous abscess. Ew. It's going to be all the, but just semen under his skin. When, when the man... Uh, oh, that's While examining gross. the patient, a physician noticed the man's right arm appeared swollen and inflamed. The explanation the man gave was one the doctor likely never expected. The patient said he intravenously injected his own semen as an innovative method to treat back pain. Oh. He had devised a cure independent of any medical advice. Why are we talking about this? 
the semen reportedly entered the man's blood vessels and muscles. Ew. The next ray revealed air trapped beneath the man's skin, and he was immediately hospitalized, according to the study. Ugh. Can you imagine if you thought that semen would... <laughs> Why or, would make anybody think that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. All but right. I think officially, with that story, mm-hmm. everything has now happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like any, I think you're right. Any conceivable thing that you could have yes, imagined it has now happened has now officially happened. Because that was the last on the list. I wonder if anybody ever shoved a turd uh, down their eyelid. Yep, it's happened. Yep. Everything's or, happened. Yep. So this girl had been expected home by midnight the previous night. Okay. She lived with her parents. The and next, that was her curfew? Yes. The next morning, the parents found her car parked across the street with the door ajar. Oh, the door shouldn't be ajar. The only, you know, the only time that's uh, not alarming is if it's at our house. Because <laughs> it's all the time. There's like three or four times a week I'll come home and all the doors of your, <laughs> of your car are wide open. That is so not true. Um, It'll be one. Just last week, um, I went to leave in the, in the morning. I came back from dropping our daughter off at school, and your keys were in the... In the front door from the night before, like oh well, keys, Henry. Yeah, your keys. Because Henry always door. takes the yeah, they were just, keys. They, yeah, so all night long, the keys were just in the door. Yeah, well, that's so anybody could have just yeah. done whatever they want. Jeez. So back to the anyway. m- murders. Murders. Um, back to murders. True crime fans. The next morning, so they find the car, and the father goes and questions neighbors. And the lady across the street, she was kind of the neighborhood busybody. Oh, a hot lady? Was she, she hot? She says that um, she saw Lauren pull over to the curb about 9 o'clock p.m. Because she was watching out her window with binoculars. Then two men had pulled their car beside hers. And then there was a struggle, and she ended up in their car. So she saw two men. She, she did. witnessed that it's two men. She did. Okay. Um, the detective okay. interviewed her. She said, And then when he went to interview her, she said she just got a phone call from a man with a New York accent telling her to keep her mouth shut about what she had witnessed or he would kill her. Oh, no. So they know she witnessed it, and they looked up her phone number That's in the right. phone book. So she um, described him as two men. One was tall and young with acne scars, and the other was Latin-looking, older and shorter with bushy hair. It's weird how uh, it's that. That sounds like Hall and Oates to me. <laughs> yeah, I think just like it Hall does sound like Hall and Oates. They kind of look like Hall and Oates. They just put that album out, that song Rich Girl. Hall and Oates the could one play had, them. The one had a, he had a fur coat. Yep. The guy with the acne scar had a fur coat and a ski goggles. The other one had a mustache. Yep. So the um, that, that rampage that week threw into the spotlight three earlier murders of sex workers or suspected prostitutes oh, beginning Oh, so they started thinking, oh, what about October. these might be related. That's right. So um, in October on the 17th. October 17th, y'all, Logan's Run was on. Okay. You remember Logan's Run? No, I never watched Logan's Run. In a futuristic society where reaching the age of 30 is a death sentence, a rebellious law enforcement agent goes on the run in search of sanctuary. What was that? That was my phone. Apologize. And then uh, that stars Gregory Harrison, Heather Menzies, Urich, and Donald Moffat. Also that night, CBS had the Betty White Show. Okay. The we ex- probably only need one of these for each of these dates, you the know, exploits, not two. The exploits of hack TV actress Joyce Whitman, star of the fictitious Undercover Woman series. And then after that was Maud, Walter's Temptation. Maud goes on a talk show to promote womanhood, but afterwards she convinces Walter to give her assistant a raise. Right. His assistant is appreciative and tries to show her pleasure to Walter. Okay. And Reggie Jackson blasted three home runs to lead the New York Yankees to World Series victory over the... 
Dodgers, and John Mayer was born. We do not need that much shit for each of these dates. <laughs> Just as, as this is going to take forever. That's the only date I have a bunch of things. Oh, those are so all great irritating. Things. <laughs> it's not irritating. Yes, it is. People okay. love it. People love it. People no, people don't me. love it. People haven't told you. Brandon Wilhelm loves it. All right. So, so um, in October a sex 17th. worker, a sex worker called La- Yolanda Washington was raped and strangled, and her nude body was dumped near the Forest Lawn Cemetery. Almost two weeks later, Sergeant Frank Salerno, the same Frank Salerno that busted the um, Night Stalker. No Remember way. It? Yeah. What? He, same Stories colliding? Detective. Same guy? Same detective. Well, Los Angeles is a big time. Big town. That's the Night But, I mean, the, to have two famous serial killers in your... Night Stalker's the guy who got on the bus, right? Yeah. Everybody beat the shit out yeah. of him. That was a great story. Yeah. Oh so he he was called to the town of La Crescenta oh, cool. to investigate the homicide of a woman. The na- a big deal. The naked body of a woman lay close to the curb in a middle-class neighborhood, okay. and she was covered with a tarp by the property owner because he wanted to shield her from the children who were walking to school. Yeah, I don't want kids to see a dead body. Yes. She had also been strangled. It did not appear that she'd been murdered at the, at the scene. The body was placed deliberately where it would be found quickly. There was also huh. no indication that the body had been dragged. The coroner determined she'd been strangled to death around midnight, some six hours or so before she was found. And it was Halloween morning, by the way. That was October 31st? Yep. After a couple of days, she still didn't match any person missing persons reports. So um, Salerno went and took the sketch around to show it to a bunch of um, prostitutes and sex workers and stuff. And they, she was identified as Julie Miller. And she was a sex worker. She's a sex worker. So, a week later, on November 6th. Wait, a week later, on November 6th? Yes. That's the same day that San Francisco elects city supervisor Harvey Milk. Sweet. First openly gay elected official of any large city in the U.S. That's awesome. Also, Alice and the girls stopped by a new singles bar on Alice on CBS. Okay. So on that day, another naked body was found in Glendale near a country club. There's naked bodies everywhere. I know. Salerno could link the murder to that of Julie Miller because of the Judy Miller because of the similarities in the method of death. So same kind of thing. They yes. at least connected those two. And so this victim quickly had a name. She was Lissa Caston, a 21-year-old waitress at the health fair restaurant near Hollywood and Vine. So this is not a sex worker. No. She had last been seen leaving the health fair restaurant just after 9 o'clock on the night she was murdered. Until Thanksgiving week, only... Just a woman trying to get things done in the city. I know it. So until that week, only Frank Salerno knew that... The serial a serial killer was at work, but oh, so after he, Thanksgiving he week, it was it was like okay, it everybody, was, it was everybody figured so he it probably out. Probably didn't want it to be out there because it's panic. Because it was eight victims in the space of two months, Man. which is which is a lot. It yeah. is a lot. They're all naked in public. So the kill, but they're the, all sex workers except for this waitress. No, right? it was the three. It was oh those children. Y- yeah. yeah, it was like but three. But they weren't connected. And until then now. three, right? Yeah. All right. Now they're yeah. So. In mid-December, the police were called to a vacant lot on a steep hillside in Alvarado Street where they found the body of Kimberly Diane Martin. This time, the police department had what seemed like two reasonably good leads. Kimberly Martin's last client had beckoned her to apartment 114 at 1950 Tamarind, which turned out to be a vacant apartment. The murderer had called from a payphone in the lobby of the Hollywood Public Library. Ah. Unfortunately, nothing much came from these leads, and the police didn't have any immediate arrests, but things became quiet for a while. There were no more victims in December or January. Then in mid-February, there was another victim. On Thursday the 16th, 
An attractive young woman named Sydney Hudspeth. Oh, wait. Was February murdered. 16th of 1978? Yeah. We should explain to people, younger viewers that we have, what a payphone is. <laughs> they probably don't want a payphone is. There used to be phones. You had to pay a quarter. I'm sure or a, nickel or anybody what listening then. to this is going to know what a payphone is, honey. Some young millennials have never heard of a payphone, and they might just stop listening. Anyway, on February, uh, February 16th, 1978, NBC had Chips. Chips was yes. on. And the, the episode was Cry Wolf, mm-hmm. where Chips officers try to catch the person calling in fake accidents. Okay. Yeah. Chips. I used Chips. to love Eric Estrada. I had an action figure of Eric Estrada. I used to think he was so cute. Does that make you like me more that I had an action figure of Eric Estrada? He I still was, have the motorcycle. Do you? Oh, Henry does, our son. On, I think. So on that day, an attractive young woman named Sydney Hutspeth was murdered. Her strangled, violated body was put in the trunk of her Datsun and was pushed off a cliff on Angeles Crest. The next day, Dotson. when the police investigated, it was clear from the ligature marks on the hillside strang- that the hillside strangler was at work once again. Police focused on the details of Cindy's life in the hopes that they could determine who was with her when she disappeared. So she had been a 20-year-old clerk. A clerk? She'd last been seen in her apartment building, and she um, had probably been headed to the community college where she worked nights answering the phone. Huh. Between her apartment building and the community college, she'd been kidnapped, and it was like late afternoon. She had lived across the street from another victim, Christina Weckler, even oh. though the two women didn't know each other. What? So they So they, so they believe that these guys got to be nearby. Live in Glendale. They're finding gotta these live people. in Glendale. Yeah. So the investigation's going nowhere. There's not any good suspects. There's no clues. They kind of knew what the kind of person they were looking for, but they didn't know exactly um you know, anything more than that. The kind of person just meaning a crazy like white guy. Like he was white in his late white, 20s, yeah. single, divor- or divorced, and not living with a woman, and of average intelligence and all that stuff. Yeah, so, and, yeah, pretty much any white single guy with average intelligence yep, pretty is much. a murderer. No, so, just kidding. Just kidding, white people. So months pass, and there's no, no nothing. But then on January 12th, 1979. January 12th, 1979? <laughs> That's when a record blizzard strikes American Midwest, killing over 100 people. Also, I remember that. It's the same night the sixth American Music Awards uh, were on, and Barry Manilow and Linda Ronstadt won. Mm-hmm. Also, on different strokes, Willis misses his friends from Harlem, so he has a club meeting at the penthouse. Okay. Um, the police in Bellingham, Washington, were told that two Western Washington University students were missing. The two women roommates, Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder, were not the type of people to take off irresponsibly without telling anyone. So when Karen didn't show up for work, her boss became worried, and he remembered she had accepted his house-sitting job in a very wealthy Bayside neighborhood from a security guard friend of hers. Security guard. Never trust a security so guard. Just the, kidding. The Bellingham police call the security firm, who say that the security guard claimed to know nothing about it, and he'd never heard of the two missing women. The security guard told his employer that he had been at the sher- a sheriff's reserve meeting the night the two women had disappeared. The police okay. found out that this was a lie, so they contacted the security guard directly. Wait, the security guard's a lying motherfucker? Yes. So they find him to be a friendly young man. He said he skipped the meeting because it was on first aid, which he already knew about. This sounds so like a murderer. They had me. no indication that the two women had met with foul play. They, they don't know yet if they're, um, miss- you know, if they're dead. But the the former a former priest who is now the Bellingham police chief was named Terry Mangan. He was not comfortable with that. He he went to the girl's home. He found 
Um, Terry the, Mangan is not going to sit still. No. And just let these things happen. He found a hungry cat in a usual situation. It was a, obviously a pampered pet, and it was um, just left. And Wait, in the home. Was, that, was what? At the house? At their house. Oh. He went over to their house. And it was hungry? Yeah. It was, it was hungry, and it had just been left. So in their home, he found the address of the Bayside home where the two of them were to house sit. A close look at the records of the security firm brought up the name of the same security guard in conjunction with the address where the girls were to house it. Oh, shit. So then police Here learned that the security guard had used a company truck the night the women disappeared. Oh, snap. Supposedly to take it into the shop for repair. However, the guard never took the truck in for servicing. We are hot on the trail, this motherfucker. The next step was for police to search the Bayside address where the girls were supposed to house it. They found a wet footprint in the kitchen that had been left a few hours earlier, but there was no sign of the girls or Karen Mandick's car. Police found a neighbor who had been contacted by a security guard and asked to check in on the house each day except for the night that the girls disappeared. Was the neighbor shirtless? That night, the guard told her there was special work being done in the alarm system and he didn't want her to be taken as an intruder. So he told her not to come over that night. Oh. Next, the chief enlisted the help of the news media and asked if they could describe the missing woman in the car. So somebody comes forward and, and says, there's a car abandoned near my house. So they go and... They find the bodies inside the car oh, no. of the two girls. There they are. And both had been strangled. And then um, while the missing women were sent to the morgue, the chief ordered that the security guard be picked up for questioning. They needed to proceed cautiously since the suspect was a trained security officer. And as it turns out, he gave them no trouble whatsoever. He was this handsome, friendly, intelligent, and articulate husband and father by the name of Kenneth Bianchi. Well, that was, oh my gosh, what? He's a handsome guy. Well, for, and he's I guess married, and he for the time, family, he was considered and, handsome. Well, yeah, but he's a security guard, is well-trained, but he doesn't he doesn't fight. He just, like, turns himself in. No, he he is just, he's not saying one way or the other. They're just saying that he's, he's, compliant. Found him, he's compliant. He's compliant. Yes. So he, had a, he was this mustachioed, almost six-foot-tall, muscular now, man. Now, keep in mind, f- listeners who aren't familiar with the 70s, Mustaches were considered awesome. Mustaches were considered pretty mandatory. Mandatory, sexy almost. Pretty much. If you didn't have a mustache, a lady would not consider you. That's right. You had to have a mustache. So he lived with this longtime girlfriend named Kelly Boyd and their infant son. Oh. Um, So, and nobody could believe any that, oh no, it's not him. Can't be him. He's a great guy. So the Bellingham police mounted an investigation on all the forensic evidence. They went exceptionally thorough in the handling of every hair and fiber. There were pubic hair that fell from Diane Wilder's body as they lifted it from Karen's car. Pubic hair, y'all. The Bellingham police had a white sheet ready to catch any stray unattached fibers that they could have easily slipped away. More pubes were found on the steps at the Bayside, ho- the Bayside home. Pubes at the Bayside home! Fibers from the carpets of that home matched the fibers found on the dead girl's shoes and clothing. So pubes always save the day. They well, and what's the deal with the pubes? Well, think about it. It's the seventies. Everybody's pubes started before their, like, right after their neck. Everybody had tons of pubes. Pubes were <laughs> so did. popular. They were. Think about it. You couldn't walk in a home without just instantly getting everyone's pubes all over you. Yeah, in the you 70s. would. Pubes were everywhere. Like people used pubes as carpets in the seventies. So they wanted to keep him locked up. Meanwhile, while they're waiting for this test results. Yeah. And so they uh, find that he's got a bunch of stolen goods in his home. And they found that. They waded through the pubes to get That's to the right. stolen goods. That's right. So um, 
the chief, this is, keep in mind, this is all happening in Bellingham, Washington. Bellingham, Washington. And so the chief remembers hearing about the Hillside Strangler case in Los Angeles. That was all the way in Los Angeles. That's a long way away. So, but he realizes Kenny Bianchi had lived in Los Angeles before he had come to Bellingham. Oh, shit. There it is. So Mangan calls, he calls the police chief in L.A. and Glendale in the L.A. Sheriff's Office. The detective Frank Salerno responded to the Bellingham police call. So suddenly everything makes sense to Salerno. He's it's like, this is connected. our guy. The dots are connecting That's right. through the pubes. So um, he went to Bellingham to question Kenneth Bianchi. So the evidence starts to mount. The jewelry he found, they found jewelry in his home that matched some of the girls that were murdered. Well, that's it, man. It's done. Done and done. So this who is, is this guy? Son of a bitch. Before we go is. into who he is, I, I need covered, to take up a little break. He's a pube-covered mustachioed son of a bitch is who he is. So Kenneth Bianchi was born May 22, 1951 in Rochester, New York. His biological mother was an alcoholic sex worker who gave him up at birth. Alcoholic sex worker, y'all. Three months later, Frances Bianchi and her husband, a manual laborer in the American Brake Shoe Foundry, adopted him. Young Kenny was described as a compulsive liar, a chronic underachiever with erratic grades. He was prone to temper tantrums and was quick to anger. Sounds like a great guy. He suffered a concussion as a child and was a frequent bedwetter. That's always a thing, uh -huh. bedwetting and concussions. His mother was obsessive about his health and took him to doctors constantly. He later went to Catholic school where he dated frequently and was obsessive about female purity. Oh, that's crazy he too. Had, he had a short-lived marriage in 1971, which ended in annulment, and that made him feel betrayed and used. He then started going to community college and took courses in police, science, and psychology. But he didn't do well, and he dropped out. Huh. He was rejected when he applied for a job in the sheriff's department. He drifted into a security job, which allowed him to steal things that gave to give to his girlfriends. And this activity caused him to change jobs a number of times. All right. So he, he left Rochester in 1975 right. when he was 26 and went to love, live in Los Angeles. And he started out living with his older cousin, Angelo Buono. Angelo Buono, yo. At first, he was seduced by the uninhibited California culture where sex and drugs were freely available. Eventually, he got tired of that and started to settle down. So his first love was police work, but there were no openings available in the Los Angeles Police Department. And the Glendale Department had turned him down. Eventually, he got a job working for a title company... And he got his own apartment, and he got his own car. Then there was a number of young women who lived in his apartment building, and one of them was Christina Weckler, and she had tried to ignore his advances, but others were more receptive. He moved in with Kelly Boyd, a woman he had met at work. In May of 1977, she told him she was expecting his child. So Gross. he wanted to marry her, but he was, she wasn't sure if she wanted him to. While he was kind, he was real jealous, immature, he lied a lot. Yeah, those pubes. Yes. Um, he also set himself up as a sideline to, as a psychologist with a phony degree and a set of credentials that he had fraudulently obtained. Oh he rented boy. some office space from an unsuspecting legitimate psychologist. But fortunately, very few people came to see him. And so Kelly found out about that, and she was real mad. Yeah, that's a turnoff. Then during October and December of 1977, the city of Los Angeles was panicked by the news of the Hillside Strangler, but Kelly and Kenny that didn't have any effect on their relationship. But then Kenny starts coughing and having difficulty breathing. He goes to the doctor and he tells Kelly he's um, got 
cancer. He has lung oh. cancer, and he needs chemotherapy and radiation treatments. But it was a lie. Yeah, but because she, instantly you'll start feeling bad for him. But she, she, he would make her drive him to the hospital, and then he'd go in and wander around the hospital for hours, and she'd sit in the car and wait for him. And she was pregnant during at the time. Oh, jeez, what a terrible guy. I know. So they. He probably just went from vending machine to vending machine. Yep. Their relationship becomes tense. Um, you think? Then their their son is born, and then he always would call in sick at work and go play cards with Wono, his cousin. And he fell behind on his car payments, and well, then she finally leaves him and goes to Bellingham, Washington. Does calling off work to play cards with your cousin frowned upon? Yes. Oh. So she finally she agrees to give him another chance. The police in Los Angeles release a photo of Bianchi to the news media and receive a call from a lawyer named David Wood. Wood had rescued one of two girls, Becky Spears and Sabra Hannon, from Bianchi and his cousin, Angelo Buono, who had forced the young women into the prostitution by threats and brutality. Uh. While Salerno was in Bellingham, Grogan and Salerno's partner, Pete Finnegan, went to have a little chat with Angelo Buono. Buono was an ugly man in his 40s with dyed black hair, poor teeth, and a nose that dominated <laughs> his face. Stop making him so, sound so attractive. The detectives had a strong hunch that 40s. this Angelo character was the other hillside strangler. Oh, yeah. So he was this ugly man. Ugly ass buddy. He, um, coarse, vulgar, selfish, ignorant, and sadistic. Shout out to the ugly, selfish, sadistic guys out there. But he was also a big hit with the ladies and called himself the Italian Stallion. Well, that would make sense. The ladies would love that. He had been married several times and had a number of children, all of whom he abused. And his pubes started before his face. He was born in Rochester, New York. When his mother and father got a divorce, he moved with his mother and his sister to Glendale, California. Um, he was brought up Catholic, but he was just like this monster. He's one of the grossest people ever. Sounds like it. Um, but he was a lady. He had man. a deep loathing for women and a desire to humiliate and injure them. He called his mother a cunt and a whore to her face, Jeez. but was emotionally tied to her until her death in 1978. Um, even as a 14-year-old, he had boasted to his friends about raping and sodomizing girls. So it's not surprising that Angelo got in trouble with the law. He was sent to Peso Robles School for Boys after he was convicted for Grand Theft Auto. But by 1975, Angelo had built himself a reasonable reputation as an auto upholsterer. Oh, that's a good job. He bought a place um, in Colorado Street for his residence and his upholstery shop. He had no use for employees, so the new place gave him privacy to do anything he wanted. Uh. Um, so and young girls were just attracted to him through some... W weird thing. He Why? was cocky, independent, direct, and really in charge. That's so ugly. He became a magnet for teenage girls in the neighborhood. They were usually naive and had no idea about sex, so he had no trouble convincing them that his outrageous demands were normal. So this, when this Kenny arrives... Other, this is still the other guy, right? Yeah. The ugly guy? Yeah. When So then in 1975, when Kenny arrives, yeah. he finds Angelo with dyed black hair, gold chains around his neck, large gaudy turquoise ring on his finger. And this is going to be my partner. In this vir virtual harem of jailbait girls. No. So Angela, Angelo provided a strong role model for Kenny. He taught Kenny how to get a sex worker free by flashing a police badge in her face after he got what he wanted. When Kenny was short of money, Angelo came up with the idea of getting some girls to work for them as prostitutes. Kenny's charm could be used to recruit the girls, and Angelo's connections could be used to get the customers. So they were these two teenage runaways that fell under their influence, and they were forced to prostitute themselves. And then this lawyer came along and was and realized what was going on and was, a, you know, 
shocked and appalled and um, saved one of the girls. And then the other one got courage and ran off. So they had to find more teenage girls. They would impersonate police officers. And they tried to, um, they even tried to abduct Peter Laurie, was a famous film actor in the 30s and 40s. And his daughter, Catherine Laurie, they pulled her over once. And they acted like they were going to arrest her and they put her in the back of their car and when they looked through her wallet there was a picture of her on his Peter Laurie's lap and they realized who they had and they let her go and she realized that after they caught him so um so they let's see so Kenny gets locked up Bellingham Washington right he convinces his lawyers he's suffering from multiple personality disorder and they get this psychologist that come in that are like experts in multiple personality disorder, and some of them believe him, but this, but like Salerno and like a lot of them are like, this guy's full of shit, he's making it up. Yeah. And so they hypnotize him, and then it kind of comes <laughs> out that he's because the seventies. Everybody's got to get hypnotized. Hypnotizing is a thing. So, um, then they decided they told Kenny that he could get life in prison if he would. Testify against Buono instead of death. Uh, yes, so, so he agrees. This is a thing, yeah. And um, they have to decide if he's going to give credible testimony. Um, he he goes in. He describes how he and Angelo pretended to be policemen um, in the in the interviews, and they talk about how they selected their victims. And um, let's see. He was ordered to serve two life sentences in the state of Washington. He was immediately transferred to California where he was sentenced to additional life terms. Angelo was arrested on October 22nd, 1979, shortly after Kenny described his cousin's involvement in the crime. Um, Later they found Angelo's wallet, which clearly showed the outline of the police badge he had used to get his victims to cooperate with him. Um, His trial Angelo Buono's trial was one of the longest in history why because of all of the shenanigans and continuances and they put Kenny Bianchi on the stand and he um, said that he may have faked the multiple personality disorder but he didn't know whether he was telling the truth or not when he said that Angelo was involved in the murders and um they then the, pro, the the prosecutor moves to dismiss all ten counts of murder against Angelo and to drop any prosecution of him as the Hillside Strangler, but the judge is like, wait a minute, no, 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 we're not doing that. So the judge says, there is plenty of evidence against this guy. Yeah. We, we're not letting him just walk out the door. So that was kind of really. Why would they bring that up? Why would anybody even think to bring that? Let him because up. Kenny Kenneth Bianchi's testimony was so crazy that they were just like throw it all out yeah they're like we don't we don't have enough evidence and so the judge was like no so finally after more than a thousand exhibits and 250 witnesses the prosecutors got an excellent break the woman who angelo terrorized in the hollywood library while he was waiting for kenny to make his calls to the climax modeling agency the night they killed kimberly martin came forward to testify that angelo was the man that had menaced her the testimony tied Angelo to the payphone, which had been used to summon Kimberly to her death. So finally, the jury agreed. Um, he, at least on the murder of Lauren Wagner, Angelo was found guilty. They voted he was not guilty of the murder of Yolanda Washington. A few days later, he was found guilty of Judy Miller's murder. 
So why would they think he didn't kill Yolanda? Yeah, that's a good question. And millennials of payphones. So then followed the guilty verdicts on uh, several other women. Angelo took the stand briefly to show his contempt for the entire process. My morals and constitutional rights have been broken, is all he said. Angelo Bono was sent to Folsom Prison, where he stayed in his cell, fearing injury from other inmates. Folsom Prison. Kenneth Bianchi was sent to Walla Walla Prison in Washington, but was trying to get transferred to a prison outside Washington State. And that is the story of the Hillside Stranglers. The Hillside Stranglers. That's crazy. Uh, Murders are gross. I mean, isn't it weird that that happened how much, like three months after the son of Sam? That's weird. That's in the same year. Yeah, I can't believe that when you started talking about Hillside Strangler. That like, same year, no way. Yeah. God, so many murders back then. It was like a murder and UFO year. Because in no- on November twentieth, I gotta jump right into this because we don't have a lot of time left. November twenty sixth, nineteen seventy seven. An audio signal for a TV broadcast was hijacked in the UK for six minutes. The person hijacking the signal claimed to be Vrilon from the Ashtar Galactic Command. What? And he proceeded with a warning to the people of Earth. What did he say? He said the following. And you can find this on YouTube and really? listen to it. Is it creepy? It's creepy as hell, and I think this is real. It's really long. He says, this is the voice of Rilon, a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command speaking to you. For many years, you have seen us as lights in the skies. We speak to you now in peace and wisdom as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world so that you may communicate to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster which threatens your world and the beings on our worlds around you. This is in order that you may share in the great awakening as the planet passes into the new age of Aquarius. The new age can be a time of great peace and evolution for your race, but only if your rulers are made aware of the evil forces that can overshadow their judgments. Be still now and listen, or your chance may not come again. All your weapons of evil must be removed. The time for conflict is now past, and the race of which you are part may proceed to the highest, higher stages of its evolution if you show yourself worthy to do this. You have but a short time to learn to live together in peace and goodwill. Small groups all over the planet are learning this and exist to pass on the light of the dawning new age to you all. You are free to accept or reject their teachings, but only those who learn to live in peace will pass to the higher realms of spiritual evolution. Hear now the voice of Rilon, a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command, speaking to you. Be aware also that there are many false prophets and guides at present operating on your world. They will suck your energy from you, the energy you call money, and will put it into evil ends and give you worthless... We should have just played him doing it. Yeah, we should. Your inner divine self... Well, you can't really hear it. It goes oh. in and out, so you have to read it. Your inner divine self will protect you from this. You must learn to be sensitive to the voice within that can tell you what is truth and what is confusion, chaos and untruth. Learn to listen to the voice of, of truth with, which is within you and will lead yourselves onto the path of evolution. So he's saying get rid of all the weapons? This, Yeah, this is our message to our dear friends. We have watched you growing for many years as you two have watched our lights in your skies. You know, not, you know now that we are here and that there are more beings on and around your earth than your scientists admit. We are deeply concerned about you and your path towards the light and we'll do all we can to help you. Have no fear. Seek only to know yourselves and live in harmony with the ways of your planet Earth. We of the Ashtar Galactic Command, thank you for your attention. We are now leaving the planes of your existence. May you be blessed by the supreme love and truth of the cosmos. So the planes of your existence, what does that mean? That they're on another timeline? I guess, like another uh, another um, dimension or... Uh, it's it's real creepy if you listen to it. Like, you think it's real? 
I really believed it was a thing. The voice was disguised and accompanied by a deep buzzing broke into the broadcast on the local ITV station, Southern Television, overriding the UHF audio signal of the early evening news being read by Andrew Gardner. So it came on to national. It came on to the TV, or the basically it says all your weapons of evil. Yes, on the TV news, all of your weapons of evil must be removed. So it, the TV news broke it. off, and this thing started. No, this broke into it. Like it, it just did? interrupted. It. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, the interruption ceased shortly after the statement had been delivered. Transmissions were returning to normal shortly before the end of a Looney Tunes oh. cartoon. Later in the evening, Southern Television, television apologized for what it described as a breakthrough in sound. For some viewers. Oh, wow. Uh, That's pretty crazy. Yeah, I'm going to play it for you. Well, don't just a little bit of it. Settlement based on one man, one vote. But he says there are conditions. These include stopping the execution this is the news. of prisoners of war, allowing to negotiations. In Australia, Mr. Kerry Packer's cricketers are still pleading by yesterday's high court decision. This is the voice of Omar, representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command, speaking to you. For many years, you have seen us as knights and spirits. That's creepy. You see them as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world so that you may communicate to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster which threatens your world and the beings on other worlds around you. So, aliens have British accents? This is your living share and great awakening as the planet asks. Yes, aliens have... British accents, mm -hmm. but maybe they had that accent to know to speak because they were on British TV. But and why like, would they only do it if they said they were going to do it all across the world? Oops. That thumbing, that thumbing in the background is creepy, isn't it? That throbbing sound in the background. Said, be still now. Listen, for your chance may not come again. Yeah, and that that beat that, sounds that weird. That throbbing sound. It's so creepy. It is really and, creepy. Yeah, you know, when I listened to the whole thing, I was overwhelmed with the feeling that that's fucking real. Really. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, who's to say some beings that are watching us and over like. Who's to say they know exactly how to take over all of our broadcasts all at once? Like mm -hmm. they had to like. They might not understand what we've, what our primitive world has come up with to broadcast things, and so they're like, "Well, let's just, let's just let these people know. If we just break into one of them, they'll all spread the word." Mm. And, but maybe they misunderstand, mis, uh, mis, maybe they underestimated us, and they realize now we're idiots, and we didn't listen to them. Nope. And instead, we're just building more guns and everything else. But it's, it's creepy as hell. And yeah, the more you look creepy. at this on YouTube, the more it's fucking real and weird and uh, I think aliens are real for sure. Yipe. This, between this and that other one, the fire in the sky one. Yeah. Freaks me out. 
It would freak me out. Like if I, it, if you were watching TV and saw that, would yeah. you freak oh out? Oh my god, I would freak out. And and even freak just fuck out. If like if I re, if I found out that aliens were real, that's so scary. That is so super scary. And then November 27, 1977, NBC broadcast an animated musical film called The Hobbit. Okay. An adaptation of the fictional novel written by J.R.R.R.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien. Now why why are we talking about that? That happened. All right. We got to wind it up now. November 30th, 1977, The Goodbye Girl was another Best Picture nominee. Okay. Just because you took forever doesn't mean I can't cover the rest of the year. Uh... After being dumped by her live-in boyfriend, an unemployed dancer, and her 10-year-old daughter are reluctantly forced to live with a struggling off-Broadway actor starring Richard Dreyfuss, which was in everything. He was in everything. Marsha Mason and Quinn Cummings. This is the only ever Neil Simon written film nominated for the Best Picture Award. And then on November, or no, December 14th, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. That's the third highest grossing movie of the year. Mm-hmm. Roy Neary and Electric Lineman watches how his quiet and ordinary daily life turns upside down after a close encounter with a UFO, starring Richard Dreyfus, Francis Truffaut, and Terry Garr. Mm-hmm. This film was partially inspired by an experience from Steven Spielberg's childhood. Okay. When, without warning, his parents rushed the children into their car one night, drove to an area where many others were gathered and watched spectacular meteor showers. Is that crazy? Yes. Um... And I watched that movie. That's a that's a that's you did. A, that's a good movie. Yeah, F up movie. That's real too. Aliens are real. The seventies proved it. And then on December sixteenth, the number four top grossing movie, Saturday Night Fever, was released. Sweet. Anxious about his future after high school, a nineteen year old Italian American from Brooklyn tries to escape the harsh reality of his bleak family life by dominating the dance floor at the local disco. The movie is really awful. Like, it's really this horrible story. Really. Yeah, it's real depressing and awful. Did you know that this was the first mainstream Hollywood movie in which the term blowjob was used? Oh, no, I did not. Interestingly, John Travolta was giving blowjobs to a bunch of dudes during this. Probably. No, and he also starred in Carrie, which features a scene of him receiving a blowjob. What? Yeah, he was in Carrie, and he got Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. December 17, 1977, Saturday Night Live had an Anyone Can Host contest. And the winner was an 80-year-old woman named Miskel Spillman. Mm-hmm. An 80-year-old German immigrant and grandmother from New Orleans, Spillman held the record as the oldest host in SNL history for many years until it was broken on May 8, 2010 by 88-year-old Betty White. Spillman remains the only non-celebrity host to host the program. Who was she? She was an old woman who won a contest. Oh. Anyone can host Saturday Night Live. Uh, it began with, and that episode began with a joke involving herself and cast member John Belushi sharing a joint. She's <laughs> an old woman. That's followed funny. by a marijuana-inducing obsession with a bowl of fruit. That's funny. She was paid $3,000, the usual host salary. And then on December 25th, 1977, I'm assuming you have Christmas presents. Yes. Uh, the first openly gay doll, Gay Bob, was launched in 1977. Really? He had a pierced ear, was anatomically correct, so he oh had boy. penis and balls, and his box was shaped like a closet. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, 
He was created by advertising executive Harvey Rosenberg and marketed through his company, Gizmo Development. Gay Bob. That's yep. pretty Gay funny. Gay Bob. He's 13 inches tall. He was, presented clothed, he was presented clothed in a flannel shirt, tight jeans, and cowboy boots. How funny. He has one ear pierced. Bob's packaging box is decorated like a closet, including a catalog from which additional outfits could be ordered. <laughs> uh, he was a doll resembling Paul Newman or Robert Redford. Gay Bob. Gay Bob. And he sparked outrage in at least one Ann Landers reader who was inspired to write to decry the doll and predict that it would lead to the acceptance of other disgusting dolls like Priscilla the Prostitute and Danny the Dope Pusher. Oh, God. Gay Bob. All right, video arcade cartridge system. So the that was popular. All right. Glittering gold cowboy boots. All right, next. That's dumb. Indoor and outdoor leisure suits. Oh, I want those. Those are velour for the toys. Velour for the indoors, suede for the shade. You couldn't just own one measly leisure suit. There were different textures for different occasions. Belt buckle, giant belt buckles were big, like Farrah Fawcett belt buckles, and their Elton John belt buckles, Superman belt buckles, football shaped belt buckles. The official Farrah Fawcett beanbag chair. Belt buckles were a huge fucking deal in the 70s. Did you hear that last one? What was that? The Fer- official Farrah Fawcett beanbag chair. Did it look like Farrah Fawcett? Yep. So you could bang it? Musk oil by Jovan. That's not a... These aren't cr- toys for They're kids. They're Christmas gifts. Atari's yeah. video music machine. Yeah, stupid. No. Suntan Tuesday Taylor doll. Girls like their Barbie dolls well done back in the day. Well, technically, Ideal's Tuesday Taylor was a rival to Mattel's Barbie and tried to one-up the popular girl with a deep, deep George Hamilton-level tan. George Hamilton, y'all. But she was not made out of leather. She was made out of plastic still. All women want to have sex with George Hamilton. Jimmy Walker doll. Jimmy Walker. That's all you got to say? I want a Jimmy Walker. Wait, that that isn't a Jimmy. That's not a doll. Is it rubber? Oh, it's a Gumby. It's a Jimmy Walker doll. It looks like Gumby, but it's Jimmy Walker. A stream being figure. That oh my! There was a share head that you could make, um, like, oh, like Audrey like a, has a Barbie head, big Barbie head it's that like she a can makeup put. Head yeah, it's like a share. makeup head of share. Share is garbage. Viewmaster everything. You could get Viewmasters, like of any cartoon there was. Remember Viewmasters? Viewmaster, yeah. I had so many Viewmaster things. Fonzie pinball. Uh, the Batmobile. Did you have that? Punchable John Travolta. There was, you know, those punching. Things. I would love to punch John Travolta. You know those punching things with the sand in the bottom, and it's like inflated. Oh, we had and you all, punch we it. had so many of those punching things. And one with John Travolta on it. Why would why would parents think that's a good thing to? So welcome kids? back, Cotter. Here's something to punch. Punch me's allowed kids to vent their frustration on an inflatable pylon. You could throw jabs at King Kong, Batman, John Travolta, or Snoopy. Why would you? Why would it be okay to punch a bunch of stuff? CB radios. Did you have one of those? Yes. CB radio craze was in full effect in '77. Yes, we had. Everybody was orange. talking like a trucker. It had Morse code. It taught us Morse code. And the last one is the portable eight-track player. Take your Andy Gibb on the go. With a portable eight-track blaster. You know, I have a brother. Plus, it looked like a groovy denim pant pocket. An eight-track player with a denim pant? It looks like a groovy denim pant pocket. My grandparents had an eight-track player. And my brother works with truckers. You mentioned truckers. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what he does, but he works for a trucking company. Yes. So I'm assuming his job entails like hosing off truckers after long trips. Or he's got a big giant belt buckle and an eight and a CB radio. Truckers. And he could we fit love, right in. We love CB radios. We use we use radio walkie talkies. Yes. And all that stuff all the time. Yeah, that was the shiznit. Walkie talkies were amazing. Smokey and the Bandit and all that came out. Oh, BJ and the Bear, wasn't that another one? I don't know. When I was in high school, though, we got a CB radio and we hooked it up and we would just fuck with truckers. All right. This is the Bad end idea. of the episode. They got pissed. Episode is Jump the Shark. This episode is Jump the Shark. I got a lot of editing to do to get this down yep. in an hour. That's right. So I thank apologize. you for listening. We Rate, apologize. Review, subscribe. And we and tell everybody you know and I'd like to apologize apologize for, for everything. Here comes Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, I apologize. No, you get out of here, Chuck Berry. Get out of here, Chuck Berry, but I apologize for you. I love you. I like no, seriously, all our listeners. Are you still listening? Green City Podcast Network. Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.